1: From KMOX Sports. Okay, boys, here we go. Welcome to the Graybar Sports Open
3: Line. Those mid-swings and he hits a
4: drive. He hits a slammer. Graybar,
3: your distributor for electrical and data comm needs. Here we go. Now,
1: Matt Pauley
0: on America Sports Voice. KMOX. All right, man, let's get going here. Here we
1: go, here we go, here we go. Let's go.
4: On a Tuesday night, we do welcome you in to another edition. It's the Graybar Sports Open Line right here on KMOX. My name is Matt Pauley. Full two-hour program tonight. We only have a couple of these uh, this week. We'll do this tonight, and then we've got a full two-hour show coming up on Friday. Tomorrow we will be done just a a little bit early for uh, SLU basketball, and then coming up on uh, Thursday, we'll get done a little bit early as we've got uh, Thursday Night Football coming your way. But um, yeah, we got a lot to do here on the program tonight. Again, with you till 8 o'clock, as always, if you want to join us, you can call or text 314-436-7900, 314-436-7900. That's how you call, that's how you text, or you can tweet at me if you'd like, at Matt Pauly on air. Uh, this hour, a couple guests going to be on the program in about 10 minutes. We'll hear from uh, Nate Gatter. Of course, you hear him uh, hosting the St. Louis City Soccer Reports right here on uh, KMOX. We'll continue kind of. Put a bow on the season that was City SC's uh, run through the regular season, and then their uh, exit from the postseason, which went a lot faster and a lot quicker than most people expected. We'll get Nate's thoughts on the city, how you kind of uh, on city and how they kind of reconcile out the amazing first season, the regular season that they had with. Such a lack of success in the postseason, including one of their two uh, matches being one that just really did not go well at all. So uh, Nate Gatter is going to join us. Then later on in the hour, we'll be joined by uh, Howard Richards. We'll talk all things Missouri football with him as uh, Tigers had a pretty good performance against Georgia, but it was not a win, but they certainly hung around with them. They certainly showed that they can be on the same field with Georgia, and now they've got a big game against Tennessee uh, coming up next. We'll talk some blues hockey towards the end of the hour. Next hour, we've got uh, our weekly segment with Sean Malone talking fantasy football, and uh, we'll also talk with uh, one of my friends from Wisconsin, Chuck Freeman. We'll get his thoughts on... um, Everything that went down with Craig Council leaving the Brewers and heading to the Cubs and how that impacts the uh, the NL Central. want to lead with this, though, because a lot has been made of some comments that John Mozeliak, the Cardinals president of baseball operations, about what the payroll will look like this upcoming season. Uh, he told John Denton of MLB.com, Cardinals.com, that payroll projections for 2024 – are very similar to the 2023 projections. So in 2023, they never got to their projected payroll. They uh, signed Wilson Contreras. I think they thought that there was going to be more activity in the offseason that never came to fruition. And then... As the season went along, they had room for improvement. If they would have been in the race at the deadline, they certainly would have been able to add. They had room in the payroll. They never added. So I do think we need to kind of wade through and decipher what's being made, the comments being made by John Mosellock when he said that the payroll for 2024 will look similar to the 2023 projections A lot of people, I think, are taking that as it's going to look very similar to 2023, period. But that being said, I don't know if that's enough. And a lot of people have kind of been, you know, jumping off the plank on this one. Oh, you see, they're already backing off these things that they've said. Uh, People are, are, are upset because I don't think they're really diving into this. But at the same time, If they get to the 2023 projection in 2024, is that going to be enough? And I don't think so. When you consider the Cardinals, uh, what they have coming off the books, and John Denton, who uh, was the one who got this original uh, quote, he also added some context to it in a string of tweets from uh, earlier in the day. You got $44 million coming off the books. You have about 143 million dollars uh, committed. You, if their if their projection was to get close to 200 million dollars last year, that would give you 57 million dollars to play with this off season. That's not. You can do a lot with 57 million dollars. Don't get me wrong. 57 million dollars is a lot of money. And it's you've got the opportunity to go out and spend fifty-seven million dollars and make yourself better and make yourself significantly better, but is fifty-seven million dollars enough to do what the Cardinals need slash want to do? I don't know. I you know you just think about bringing in two starters, one of which you have to bring in a, a at least one starting pitcher. That if this is the guy that's going to be starting a postseason series for you that you feel very comfortable with. That's why a lot of people talk about Aaron Nola. If Aaron Nola is starting a postseason game, a first postseason game, the if he's pitching the first game of a, a wild card series or a divisional series or a championship series or a world series, you feel comfortable. You feel comfortable with an Aaron Nola in that spot. So the first thing they need to do is they need to bring in a starting pitcher that if they are starting the first game of the playoffs, you feel very comfortable with. The price tag on that type of pitcher is $25 to $30 million per year. Then they need to bring in another pitcher that is demonstrably better than a Miles Michaelis and a Steven Matz. And the the price tag on that pitcher is probably somewhere between $20 and $25 million per year. So when we're talking about the team having $57 million to spend this offseason and you're looking at those two pitchers, costing 40 plus million dollars combined, maybe 45 million dollars combined. That takes up a lot of the 57 million dollars. And that doesn't even get you the opportunity to maybe bring in a guy who's going to come in and compete for that fifth starter spot as a veteran. Uh, doesn't give you the opportunity to bring in uh, some some really important some uh, really reliable pieces in the bullpen even if you're comfortable with the Ryan Helsley being your ninth inning guy, when you look at the leverage that you have out of the bullpen, that's not going to be cheap to bring in the kind of guys that you want to have available for the seventh inning, for the eighth inning, and if need be, whether Helsley is just not effective or if he gets injured, somebody that you're comfortable putting into that ninth inning role. So, I mean, look, and the thing we're not even getting into is there's the possibility of trades being in here, uh, there is the possibility of some other payroll coming off the books. Uh, are you going to bring back a Tyler O'Neill? Are you going to bring back a Dylan Carlson? Guys like that. If those guys walk out the door, there's that creates a little bit more flexibility as well. So again, I, you know, the social media response to this has been, "Oh, here he goes. Here's the backpedal." They're already going against what they were saying at the end of the season. I I don't think it's that, but at the same time, fifty seven million dollars seems a little bit light to get done everything that you would like to see them get done this offseason. That would be my reasoned take on what John Moselak had, uh, had to say about the uh, payroll going into 2024. And a lot of it is also dependent on the market. What what other teams offer players will impact what players are worth. You know, a player isn't worth what you say they're worth. A the player is worth what the market says they're worth. And that's always something to remember. All right, when we return, we are going to be joined by uh, one of our guys, Nate Gatter. We'll talk with him about uh, City SC's season and uh, their somewhat short run in the MLS Cup playoffs.
3: Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Back at it on a Bar
4: Sports Open Line right here on KMOX. My name is Matt Pauly. Great to have you with us today. Just a little bit of breaking news very quickly. The second edition of the college football playoff rankings have been released no changes through the top eight spots. So, most importantly, Ohio State, Georgia, Michigan, and Florida State going one, two, three, four. And then a Washington, number five, Oregon, number six. How does that impact Missouri? Uh, after a respectable performance against uh, Georgia, they fall two spots, number 14, and their next opponent, Tennessee. They jumped up four spots despite playing a cupcake this past weekend, and they're number 13. So you've got number 13 versus number 14 coming up this weekend. Much more about Missouri football in our next segment when we are set to be joined by Howard Richards. We'll talk all things Tigers football. But right now, happy to talk uh, City SC. We might get a little Mizzou into this conversation as well. It's our guy, Nate Gatter. You hear him hosting the uh, St. Louis City Soccer Report right here on KMOX. Follow him on Twitter at Nate Gatter. Nate, appreciate the time as always. How are you? I'm good, Matt. How are you? I am good. Um, the the thing I'm trying to do right now is sort of reconcile between the greatness that was the season for City SC and the regular season and how great it was and winning the West and all these historic things that they did versus a postseason run that included a not very good performance in the first match, and then they end up losing. They, they played well, but they didn't win the second match, and trying not to be too overly disappointed not let that taint what was a great regular season. How do you go about reconciling those two things?
1: Well, you're being kinder than I would be. I, I would characterize that first performance in, in game one of the series against Kansas City as downright shocking. Um, they, they were They were really, really poor. Um, obviously much better in the second game, uh, but they put themselves in a tough position where they didn't have any margin for error. I'm going to let you in on one of my pet peeves. And this is not a a St. Louis city thing. It's not even a soccer thing. This applies all across sports. When things like this happen, you hear people use phrases like doesn't take away from right. That X doesn't take away from Y in this case, How City struggled, if not crashed and burned in the playoffs and down the stretch, even in the regular season, for that matter, doesn't take away from the body of work that they built over the entire year. And that's true. I agree. But you never hear the inverse, which is the body of work they built over the entire season. No matter how good they were in the first half of the season, maybe the first two-thirds of the season, that doesn't take away from how bad they were at the end of the season. And to me, you have to be willing to do both of those. They are separate things. Yes, they were great during the season. They gave us so much more than we expected coming into the year. I don't think it's wrong for anybody to focus on that and to give that its due and say that there's a reason a lot of soccer leagues around the world crown their champion based on the body of work of the regular season, that that we are unusual for having playoffs like this. And it's not unreasonable for St. Louis City to say, on balance, we were at least one of, if not the best team in the Western Conference over the entire season. That's bona fide true based on the regular season standings that take into account the entire body of work. At the same time, none of that is a shield to how poorly they played. And while I understand and appreciate and respect the designated team language we've gotten from Luch Vantage Steel and the City Brain Trust, as, from the moment he came in and from as long as there's been conversation about what this roster was going to look like, I also struggle with the fact that this might have been the best opportunity City will have for a while. For all we know, the team we saw in the last couple of months of the season is going to be much closer to the team we get next year, rather than the team we saw for the first two-thirds of the season. And if that's the case, this might still be a playoff team, but it might not be an MLS Cup contending team. And yet, City made only minor additions to the team. Not that they weren't helpful at all. Mark stands out as a useful addition in particular. But They didn't go all out, and this is still a team that I understand there are restrictions financially in how MLS salary caps work, but it's still a team that had an open designated player spot. And for most of the year, I believe the second lowest payroll in MLS, and I think at the end the third lowest payroll in MLS, while receiving overwhelming support from the community, selling out every single game, most times in a matter of minutes. Uh, To me, with the level of investment, of time, energy, and money shown by the community, and with the level of success the team had with relatively limited resources that had been invested by the front office up to that point. To me, it's a shame for City to end up going out this way, especially when it seemed like some legs got tired and the Lubens and Klauses of the world were not at their best at the end of the year. It, it begs the question to me, would another high-end piece or two have pushed this team into it to another level would it have allowed them to take some of the responsibility off those star players who shouldered so much of the load and would that have put them in a better position to succeed at the end of the season and i think that's an unfair question for the fan base to have to ask considering how good the team was and how invested the fan base was i i'm a little bit uncomfortable with city playing as poorly as they did at the end of the season while spending as little money as they did this year
4: Nate, I I defer to people like you who are a lot smarter than me when it comes to soccer. Uh, And it feels, I just, I've watched the narratives that the season went along. And when the season got started, a narrative was, ah, this team doesn't have much depth. And then the season went along and we saw the lineup changing so often and contributions from all over the roster. and, And we talked about how much depth it had. And then as we moved towards the end of the season, all of a sudden it started to feel like, well, they really don't have a whole lot off the bench that's going to be able to come in and make uh, a, a, a big difference. That You don't have difference-making players. So how, how do you create that? How do you create a roster where there are more truly difference-making players on it?
1: Well, it's hard and it's complicated because of the way that MLS regulates its, its spending and all the different categorizations of players. The MLS salary cap is extremely convoluted and the whole system for for how teams allocate money. I imagine that will become less true in the next few years, if only because it would be convenient for Inter-Miami for it to become less true, and it would be convenient for Messi for that to become less true. Uh, It's also time for MLS to start taking those next steps. Uh, MLS has enough stability as a league now that if there are owners who can't keep up with the spending, uh, if those, Stringent salary caps are lifted a little bit, then it's time for them to sell their teams and they'll be able to do so and get value. MLS is not worried in the way that it might have been 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, about are we going to push teams under because they can't afford X, Y, or Z? Do we want a league where only one owner is willing to spend on his team and it becomes a one-team league very quickly and drives fans away? They wanted to preserve parity. They wanted to protect the smaller market owners financially. Those were all reasonable goals. And they still are reasonable, but I think they are less necessary now than they were at that time because of the stability, because of the profitability-ish, at least of MLS, certainly profitability from a franchise valuation standpoint. Uh, the owners are much more insulated financially than they were before. Uh, the league, I think, it doesn't need the, this parity preservation quite as much as it did, so these things will probably get relaxed over time. I realize that got away from your question because you're right that the narrative did sort of start out, do they have enough depth? They managed to find a lot of diamonds in the rough. Mark Canick is one. AZ Jackson is, it really stands out. A player who was, you know, almost given away by Minnesota and had a great year. Jared Stroud, as much as he has been at times unpopular with his fan base, basically given away by Austin. He had a good year. Um, you know, they're, they found a lot of bargains. Um, I just wonder if, and in the end, they lost out to Kansas City, a team who, who aren't necessarily spending crazy money, though they've shown a willingness to do it. Reportedly, they were close runners-up to Al Nasser in Saudi Arabia to sign Cristiano Ronaldo when he was out of the open market a year or so ago. Um, they have spent certainly more money than, than City have, and had City advance and ultimately run up against the, the, what we consider to be the class of the Western Conference in LAFC and Seattle, who do have that higher-priced talent? Who do have those bigger names? Who do have, to your point, those difference makers off the bench? As City pain, learned painfully in the second half of that first game against Seattle, uh, away in Washington, back in the early part of the year, when the likes of Rui Diaz were coming off the bench for Sounders and, and City had just no answer, uh, it just it it does bother me. I just I just don't feel that considering the the adulation this market has shown this team, which has been very happy to soak it up and soak up the accolades and talk about being America's soccer capital. It's tough for me to justify a first round exit by an America's soccer capital club that's spending either the second or third fewest dollars in the league, depending on the point of the season. To me, when, when you're going to advertise yourself that way, and you're going to you know, accept this level of adulation from the fans and, the fa- and require the level of investment that they did this year with the price points that, that were out there, um, you're inviting criticism if you don't deliver. When you say designated team, that's fine. You better, you better deliver, and they did for almost the entire year. But it's, and when you crash and burn at the end of the year the way that they did, because those last four games, all losses were not good at all. When that happens, I don't see how we can be honest with ourselves if we're not saying fans who are spending this much money on this team in American soccer capital deserve better than that. And, and you immediately start – there's nowhere to turn but to say, is it really – is a designated team enough? When you get to the playoffs, is a designated team that relies on a relatively singular identity – of the high press, which has historically been much more effective in MLS in the regular season than in the playoffs, can you beat those teams that have a greater level of investment? And they didn't show it this year. That doesn't mean any of this is a failure. Again, it doesn't take away from the success in the regular season. It doesn't mean Luch Steele and Bradley Carnell are not extremely smart guys who have a great plan for the future. And it doesn't mean even they can't win MLS Cup while spending somewhere in the middle or bottom part of the league. I'm not saying they need to go out and spend $8 million on Jared and to be useless the way Chicago Fire do and just shoot themselves in the foot over and over. You don't need to be incompetent. But there's a line, there's a a wide space between incompetence and just being miserly. And and I wonder if City could have made a difference here had they had one or two more of those higher price difference makers.
4: He is Nate Gatter. You hear him here on KMOX, St. Louis City Soccer Report. Sometimes he's filling in during the day. He gets thrown in there with Chris Ranji on occasion, which is uh, always fun to listen to. Nate, always appreciate the time. We'll talk to you again very, very soon.
1: Appreciate you, Matt.
4: Awesome. There's Nate Gatter joining us. When we return, we'll talk uh, Missouri football. We'll be joined by uh, Howard Richards. He joins us in just a moment as we roll on with the Graybar Sports Open Line after this here on KMOX. We are back at it as we roll on with a Graybar Sports Open line on KMOX. My name is Matt Pauly Again, as always, if you want to join us, 314-436-7900. 314-436-7900. That's how you call. That's how you text. Again, uh, the breaking news of the last uh, half hour or so. The new college football playoff rankings are out Not much change in terms of uh, the top eight spots. That all stays the same. Most notably, one, two, three, four, going Ohio State, Georgia, Michigan, Florida State, Missouri. Number fourteen, they drop two spots. Their next opponent, Tennessee. They move up four spots, number thirteen. So Missouri and Tennessee right next to each other. Tennessee right now considered a one-point favorite for Saturday's game. To talk more Missouri football, we're happy to be able to uh, welcome back on to the program. He hear him on the Missouri football. Radio broadcast. He uh, serves as the analyst. You follow him on Twitter at how underscore rich. He is a uh, Howard Richards. Howard, as we go to the Quiver River Electric guest line, really appreciate you taking some time with us today. How are you? I'm doing fine, man. How are you doing? We, uh, I am good. Glad to be able to uh, get you on. Just uh, we'll get into some of the details, but what's your kind of overall take from what we saw from the Tigers this past weekend?
2: Well, I thought Missouri did its. Uh, its best, effort-wise, certainly, against Georgia. went toe-to-toe. Um, took them as far as they could, especially playing at Sanford Stadium, which is among the loudest venues in all of college football. Um, the fans are just so into it. Fan experience is great. Uh, a place that's definitely hard to hear, and Missouri probably managed it as well as it could. Uh, I thought, um, you know, if you look at the game, statistically speaking, the statistical comparison, virtually even, um, uh, from from all the way across the board, it's amazing. Uh, I thought that Missouri's best chance to win um, on Saturday would be to beat Georgia at its own game. Uh, What do I mean by that? You know, playing good defense, but also from an offensive standpoint, running the football and getting the tight end involved. Now, they did 50% of that. They mm-hmm. ran the ball extremely well, Out outrushed Georgia, Bowie Schrader over 100 yards, uh, but they didn't throw through the tight end. They didn't get the ball um, enough or didn't target the tight end enough, and I thought if they could do that, because what I knew Georgia would do would be to take, try to take away the deep receivers, especially Luther Burton. And he did a good job defending against Burton. He was able to of course score a long touchdown pass but for the rest of the day he was mostly neutralized um and the same can be say outside of of Boe's. they did a good job of of um for the most part of of really covering the missouri receiver as well so i thought that um that by running the football uh, missouri could have could have really made a difference there And, and i thought it was really effective that last series um, had Brady Cook not thrown that interception, I really believe Missouri was going to go ahead and score. I think if they score a touchdown there, a good chance that they could have come away with a with a, a victory by stealing one down there. But it, that wasn't the case. Um, you got to find creative ways to beat teams like this, and it um, just didn't quite have enough in the tank.
4: When it comes to – and Luther Burden's having just an amazing season. I, I don't want this question to at all sound like I'm – I'm putting him down because he has been been incredible. He's been such a huge part uh, of what this team has done offensively. He's a legitimate candidate for some end-of-season awards, things like that. But if you are going to go knock off the number two or the number one team in the nation, depending if you're looking at the college football playoff rankings or the polls, does a guy like Burden have to find a way to go off for a little bit more than three receptions and 53 yards?
2: Well, it's not just Burden. Um, again, you must give credit to uh, a brilliant defense, and, and that's what Georgia has. They're, they're so good on the back end. I mean, their defensive backs are six one, you know, 200, 210. Uh, they're very long. They're very good in man coverage. Uh, so a lot of those balls, even though Brady, I thought, was, was throwing the ball reasonably well, uh, they're 50-50 balls. They're getting their hands on those balls. And, you know, whether it's a fingertip or finger or hand or whatever, deflecting uh, or shielding those things away just enough to keep Burden from, from grabbing uh, a hold of those and making those completions. So, and again, when I say 50-50, you know, half the time yeah, it's going to go to the, the receiver and the other half, it's it's probably going to go to the defender because they're that good. But that's where the rest of your offense has to be a factor. Uh, again, whether it's your, your other receivers and spreading the ball around with them, doing some crazy exotic uh, pass routes, you know, crossing routes underneath stuff. But that's why I felt getting the tight end involved, because this is what Georgia does. You're going to take away their passing game, their deep receivers. So what do they do? They bring in Brock Bowers, and he kills you. So I would like to see Missouri do more of that going forward. If they can possibly find a way to, uh, to scheme and get North Fleet, Uh, or Stevens or whoever it is that's at the tight end position involved because that's going to take added pressure off of the deep receivers and really stress the defense
4: this is kind of a side story but uh earlier today coach Drinkwitz uh apologized for his actions on the on the sideline saying that some frustration boiled over he apologized to his daughters he apologized to the officials uh, i i was that was that a necessary thing from from him in terms of the the apology i i didn't think it was that over the top Uh, Well, I guess he felt it was
2: necessary I don't think anyone I certainly wasn't looking for him to do so Hey, football is a highly Charged, highly emotional Game, and if you don't Feel as though you're being Treated fairly, especially um, On the road Then you deserve the right to complain And and listen, officials Are human, they get calls right They certainly get calls wrong and a lot of times, you, if you don't call them out on that, they're going to continue in that vein. So, yeah, he, he he may have said a few things, but I don't think it was anything egregious. Had it been so, they would have probably flagged him. Um, but it's part of the emotions of, of the game. And, you know, he was, he was definitely into it, trying to, you know, stick up for his team and, and stick up for his players. And ultimately what he's looking for is, hey, if you're going to call this game, like this on us, make sure that you call it the same way against the Georgia uh, uh, defenders as well.
4: Let's go back to your playing days. How important was it for you to know that your coach had your back, that you didn't have to go fight battles, that your coach was able to take care of that and you were able to just go play because your coach was always going to defend you when need be?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I felt that we had that with Warren Powers. Um, I mean, he he was a fiery guy too, maybe more fiery, uh, well, definitely more fiery than, than Drinkwitz was, um, but he—I'd watch Coach Powers at times, you know, get into it with with officials, that, you know, making his point. But he wasn't over the top with it. And, you know, it's very judicious whenever he'd have to, you know, make those points. You know, from what I can remember, anyway. Uh, but I think as a player, you you want that from your head coach, you know, when he when he has to go to battle and, and stick up for his team. Uh, And for his players, I think you enjoy seeing that, and uh, I think, and probably Missouri players uh, as a whole, as a group, probably enjoyed seeing Eli, um, you know, have a few words with the officials. You know, maybe the next time they remember that, Mm -hmm. hey, if if I'm an official, I I better be on my game (laughs) because you know I, I certainly don't want Eli Drinkwitz to get into my behind if I'm not doing. Uh, the job that uh, is expected of me.
4: Back to back, CBS two thirty starts for Missouri. We haven't been able to say that in quite some time, and they've got a a game a really talented Tennessee team that they're going to bring in. And uh, this is this seems like a really evenly matched game. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I would say so. Um, Tennessee has a really good defense. Um, so for Missouri, offensively. I think you really have to do um, more of the same of what you did against Georgia. Maybe just try to do it a little bit better. They've got a, a good front; they're good on the back end, um, but you, you don't deviate from what you've been doing, right? You don't. You just take what you what's worked for you and do it better, and that's how you beat teams. Same way with uh, with with defense. They've got a good running game. Does the Tennessee Volunteers? Missouri's got to be really good in their rush lanes up front. They've been playing pretty well. Um, Along the defensive line I think probably better than most people expected Even at the outset of the season Drinkwitz was um, You know, I I think he voiced some concerns About uh, His edge rushers uh, Not maybe being at the same level That uh, what fans might be used to but in my opinion, they've exceeded that. They, they play a lot better than um, you know what the four, uh what the forecast may have been at the beginning of the season. But give credit to the guys in the middle too. That those defensive tackles, that rotation has been very strong. Uh, and I, I like how they play for each other. Uh, those guys are all tight. They're close friends, and they pull for each other too. You know, either of those guys, even though you can only start two at a time. You can rotate any of those guys in at any given time and, and, and consider themselves as starters, and that's the beauty of it. It's, it's a familial, uh, close knit unit, and uh, I, I love the way they play together. And I think that's helpful on Saturdays, knowing that you know the guy next to you and two spots over has got your back, and he's going to be giving it the same level of effort that uh, you're going to be giving it.
4: Howard, I'll finish you off with this. Mizzou has announced that this game against Tennessee sold out. That's four straight sellouts. First time since 1980. Can you speak to the fan support that this program has received and the way the fans have really uh, lifted up this season? It's been a beautiful thing
2: to watch. And 1980 was my senior season at Mizzou. So I can speak to what that felt like. When you have fan support, when you're playing in front of sellout crowds, to me, that's worth a victory or two at home. And, and I hope fans that are listening, I hope they understand that their presence matters. It truly does. And if they can get loud and, and boisterous and rambunctious uh, and as loud as, say, the Georgia fans were, you know, that can affect Tennessee. So um, I've always said this, that I think our fans should go on the road and visit places like Knoxville, Tennessee, like Tuscaloosa, Alabama, like Gainesville, Florida. Um, and really experience what it's like to be in those environments and, uh, you know, just kind of soak all that in and then bring it back to throw field because I'm telling you, being loud uh, really has an effect on what the other team uh, can and can't do.
4: He is Howard Richards. You follow him on Twitter at how underscore Rich, uh, Missouri football analyst. Howard, thank you as always for being so gracious with your time. We'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Howard Richards joining us here on the program. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll talk St. Louis Blues hockey. They're back at tonight looking for their three, third straight win. It's a Graybar Sports Open Line on KMOX. Back at you on KMOX, Graybar Sports Open Line. My name is Matt Paul. We have it for another hour after this one wraps up. Blues hockey, they are in action this evening as uh, they continue a four-game homestand, and they are looking for their third consecutive win tonight. Uh, we'll see what they can do. So far, so good on this uh, homestand as they've played, uh, scored 10 goals over the last two games, a 4-1 win against the Devils, a 6-3 win against the Canadians on back-to-back nights. And now uh, this evening, as mentioned, they're going to match up against the Winnipeg Jets. Blues coach Craig Berube speaking earlier today, spoke about what he expects out of Winnipeg and what the Blues need to do against them.
0: Looking at their game and, um, you know, they've been... They've been doing a great job, like checking hard. And they're a pressure team. They don't give you a whole lot of time and space. They got some great size, big team. Um, you know, I think that um, <laughs> from a defensive standpoint, again, that's just they don't give you a lot of time and space out there. And we got to earn it. We're going to have to earn our ice tonight. Get yeah. on the inside. If you don't take Halib, if he's plan, if you don't take his eyes away, he's going to make the saves. It's getting. we got to get to the net here offensively, and it's not just one. I think we got to get two at the net here tonight and really create some shot volume at the sky and, and make their team kind of get running around a little bit as best we can. But on the other side of it, we're going to have to defend really well. We're going to have to defend our, our net front really well. Um, again, they got some very active defensemen on their team, so they're, they're a good team.
2: Put any extra emphasis on these individual games?
0: games. I mean, how are they? For sure. I mean, they're big games. We all know that division games are big games. So
4: that's uh, Craig Berube talking about uh, his expectations for the game tonight. A couple storylines uh, going into it. Uh, let's start with uh, Tory Krug. As, uh, really, he's been playing some, uh, some pretty good hockey recently, but you listen to uh, Craig Berube speak and it's clear that uh, they feel like while he's playing well, he absolutely can play
0: better. I think Krug's been very competitive. Um, I think he's done a great job defending. Um, the, yeah, you know, I mean, offensively, we need more from him. Um, he, he he expects more. But, you know, at the same time, a lot of it is, you know, for a guy like that is power play, too. And getting, you know, the touches and the points on the power play, too, that goes, that goes a long way with his game. Um, so I think... You know, he's he's made some good plays where he could have got some points, and then there's some plays that are there that he didn't execute on, you know. So, yeah, I mean, he's still finding his way offensively, but I like the way he's competing, and I like the way he's defending right now. I know the
1: power is not all on one guy, but what could he be doing differently that he's done in the past so well?
0: Um, it's puck movement, I think, more than anything, and, and seeing the next play quickly and moving it quickly. It's, it's A second makes a difference, um, you know, whether the you get the shot off or, you know, the plays made that quickly. And also the other thing I don't, you know, I think that we talked about, he can do more, shoot more from the top, create some opportunities from the top. You know, he's got a good shot, so just use it. And if you go back and look in the past, he's done that, and he's done a good job of that, getting them shots off at the top and um, just not overthinking it so much, you know, and he has a lane, use it.
3: You know the PK has helped him get into his defensive game more. Have you
0: felt that or seen it? Yeah, for sure. I think anybody that, you know, when you're, we're using mostly everybody on the PK and, you know, that gets them involved in the game and um, he's done a good job there too, you know, good, having a good stick and his positioning and you know, eating pucks and all the little things that go along with the penalty kill. The lines for tonight,
4: uh, top line will be Robert Thomas, Pavel Bucinavich, and uh, Kasperi Kapanen. That second line will be centered by Braden Shin with uh, Brandon Saad on the left side, Jordan Kairou on the right side. And Bruby talked about uh, Kairou and uh, his speed and what he's able to do to really be a dangerous
0: player. Well, very dangerous. Anybody with that type of speed and ability, uh, when he's skating and using it and using that wide speed, you know he's a very dangerous player, and you know, you know Jordan's played pretty well for me overall. I mean, I think he's had a bunch of opportunities every game. He just hasn't finished quite like you know he's wanted to, or we need him to. But um, I feel it's coming.
4: Verona, Hayes, Torbchenko, the third line, Blay, Sunquist, Neighbors, the fourth line, going into this matchup tonight as the Blues look for their third straight win. And if they win tonight, all of a sudden, they can put themselves in position to have uh, quite the homestand as they'll wrap up this uh, homestand coming up on Thursday night when they take on Arizona. This is Sports Open Line on KMOX.
3: We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears?